Hello, this is Melissa Hale Spencer, the editor of the Altamont Enterprise, here with Don Rittner. Usually I give a little recap of a person, but in this case it's kind of impossible. <laughs> Renaissance man. I met Don just a couple of weeks ago because he came in, and our readers will already know this, to talk about a book he's writing on the 125-year history of the Altamont Fair. But in talking to him, I realized he had a whole lot more to tell us. So welcome, Don. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. (laughs) So I guess we'll start with the book itself. Just did anybody volunteer to be interviewed after our article came out? Oh, yeah. Thank you for the article. It was great. In fact, uh, I've got some interviews to do. Uh, This weekend, I'm going to go and see some memorabilia that somebody has up on the hill. Learned about... um, a famous, uh, uh, I guess it was a, uh, he was famous for being a painter, but the family had taken some of the, or maybe he had, uh, took some of the earliest video of the fair, and I'm trying to see if I can get and take a look at that. So yeah, it was a great article, and I got some really good feedback from it, thank you. Oh, well good, but for those that are just listening and haven't read the paper, can you just kind of give us an idea of what the book is like? I understand it's pretty nearly finished. It's yeah, it's about, well, you know, um, county fairs have been around since the 19th century, since the early 19th century, although fairs generally have been around since, you know, the Renaissance, but uh, in uh, North America, they actually began with the Dutch back in the 17th century, so there were kind of like cattle fairs uh, in Albany and New York City, which that was called New Amsterdam. So, so this whole idea about you know bringing your agricultural or your cattle together and kind of show them off has been around for 400 years. But beginning in the 19th century uh, in New York State, anyways, it almost became a law for each county to have a county fair. And Altamont's pretty early. Uh, it, it actually started in Albany back in the, I think around 1809, which was like the first fair. Uh, and then eventually it worked its way up to Altamont in 1893. So it's 125 years uh, this year. So the arc of most fairs, are they going strong as an Altamont, or are other well, ways of people entertaining themselves kind of taking over the idea of gathering to see the farm animals? That's the problem, uh, I think, uh, with a lot of the fairs. In fact, I talked to somebody at the Washington County Fair yesterday, yeah, the fairs are you know, obviously not doing as great as they have in the past. Uh, for example, in the 19th century, that was the only way you got to see your neighbor. Uh, it was sort of a annual get-together. People would pack their lunch, come in buggies, take their, the train. Um, and it was uh, the time when farmers could see what was a, you know, the newest plow, for example, or the newest thresher, um, and, and get food and entertainment. So it was the place to go. There was no TV. There was no radio. But do you um, think maybe we need that now? Because people don't seem to know their neighbors the way they used to anymore. Well, you know, know now they yeah. all connect online, and it's That's hard true. to know the person next door. So. They don't know their neighbors. They don't know their history either. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's one of the problems with not knowing your history is you're bound to repeat the mistakes of the past. So I, I, I think there's been a resurgence in interest, especially with, uh, say, the millennials and the, the Generation Z that's coming up. Because I teach college, and every year I do a survey the first day of class. I ask them, well, two things. First, they have to write me a bio so I can find out who they are. 
And the second so wait, is, so that's your first assignment, no matter the yeah. class? Oh, yeah. Write a biography yeah. of a, yourself? A two-page biography. Uh, that gives me a, a sort of a better handle on who I have in my class, and it helps me also decide how I'm going to teach it, because I teach anthropology, archaeology. And this yeah. is at Westchester this Community New York, College. Yeah, uh, yeah, I went online, and I see you are a very popular teacher. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the thing is, um, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in college, and I've had a lot of bad teachers. <laughs> and I've had a few good teachers, and the good teachers were able to relate to the students and take the subject matter and make it relatable. I mean, I remember my two worst subjects in high school was English and history. And and, oh, those are two things. You're a writer, uh, and you uh, love uh, history. Exactly. So how were they your two worst subjects? Uh, because in, I had no interest in that in high school because the, the teacher was just not good. What, what um, makes a teacher not good? Stimulating you, trying to take information and make it relative. Who cares what happened in 1599 if I can't sort of relate it to what's going on today? So what I do is I, especially in anthropology, anthropology is a great class to teach because it's about people. It's a study of humans. And so, you know, everything that's going on today, I can show you similar things that went on 100 years ago or 200 years ago. So you can teach history, but make it relative and make it relevant to, to what's going on today. And so, and then try to keep up with what's, what kids are thinking about in college. You know, what's the latest social trends, what's the latest fashion, um, and then try to incorporate that into the teaching. And so you keep their interest. You know, I find it's, uh, for me anyways, I, I can't speak for everybody else, but for, for me, I just, I'm, I can relate to the students, and, and it rubs off. And you yeah. can tell, you know, from, from the testing, and I, I, I make them do a lot of writing and regurgitating back in the class. So I get class discussions going, I just start something, and then I sit back and watch. Um, So about your own life, when I talked to you earlier, I got the sense that you were always a learner, but you didn't necessarily like school, that you and a buddy of yours would skip classes to go to a museum. Just tell us a little about how you learned and and why. Uh, Well, today they'd probably have me on drugs, you know, uh, because I probably, what they call that, AD. Whatever Attention deficit disorder? Yeah. I mean, I couldn't sit still because I had a lot of questions. And, you know, now that I'm a teacher myself, I can sympathize with my teachers when I was young because, you know, you've got 20, 30 kids in a class and you're trying to teach them all at the same time and at the same level. And let's face it, not every kid learns at the same level, at the same speed. Uh, has the same comprehension skills, okay? So it's tough to be a teacher, but, you know, when you're eight years old, you don't know that. And I had lots of questions. I, I was a very inquisitive kid, and, and I wanted to know everything. I mean, my personal motto is I don't know everything, but I'm working on it. <laughs> you know, I <laughs> no, just, that's good for all of us. But you yeah. would literally skip school and yeah. take a bus to Albany and go to the old State Ed Museum. Yeah, my friend Paul, Paul, uh, my my compatriot in crime, I suppose you could call him, um, if, if we couldn't steal a dime from my mother or we couldn't find a Coke bottle to return and get, you know, the money, we would go to the Junior Museum in Troy, which was in the basement of the Rensselaer County Historical Society. It was a kids' museum. And uh, we would, so we'd butt school and we'd go down and go to the museum. And they used to have this uh, children's crusade um, 
sort of exhibit. And I would put on the chain mail and I'd chase the girls around. <laughs> uh, yeah. and, so they had and, actual, like, oh, reproduction yeah, chain mail? You well, could it wasn't reproduction. It was, oh. a, it was a real, yeah, I mean, I didn't know it at the time. Oh, but my the director, God. the director of the museum would come and instead of throwing me out, he would just put his arm around me and start explaining, you know, well, what do you think, you know, why is this, you know, made out of metal? So he was, you know, poking my brain, mm-hmm. you know, instead of being mean and throwing me out. And uh, so, so you were a little kid. Wasn't that big and heavy? To... Well, it was Children's Crusade. No, I mean, oh, they, were, they were made for the yeah. Crusade. Yeah, don't oh. forget there was a Children's yes. Crusade. Yes, no, oh. you mentioned that and it didn't register. Yeah, yeah. So uh, and it fit perfectly, I must say. Uh, so it, it, so he would, you know, instead of being mean, he was trying to, you know, get us to talk and try to figure out why we're doing what we're doing. And, of course, we would always go back to that museum because we knew we weren't going to get thrown out. And uh, just parenthetically, later on, when I started college, that director was the head of the Environmental Studies Program at SUNY. And that was Louis May? That was Louis May. Oh, wow. What a a great (laughs) connection to have. 20-some years later, I start uh, college, and I'm sitting in the Rathskeller, and I'm I'm hearing these girls talking about, oh, Professor, you know, Professor Louis, just saying all these great things. And the more they talked about him, I I just said, wow, this sounds like the guy I used to know when I was a kid. And so I asked one of the girls, I said, what's this guy's name? She says, oh, you know, Professor Ismay, do you know him? And I'm thinking, God. This might be the same person. So anyways, I went to his office that day, and I walked in the office. He looked at me and went, Donnie Rittner? I said, <laughs> he remembered. Who is my? Yeah, he remembered me before. Yeah. Well, how could I? I don't, I don't think he could forget me in those days. Um, I was, like I said, a little rambunctious. And uh, he, we, you know, he, it was great yeah, to see him. Yeah, he was him. a local leader of the environmental movement. Exactly. And so he gave me half his office to save the pine bush when I decided that was what I was going to do for my career. And uh, and we've been, he's been like a father to me, really. So, uh, you know, I've known him, I would say, most of my life. He's been more of a father to me than my real father. Well, so tell us a little about your real father and your family life, because I, I think you said um, that you ended up on the street in high school. Yeah, um, I don't really know that much about my my, my parents, because I, they split up when I was eight, and um, they didn't really care where I was. So I lived, you know, I bounced back and forth between them. Uh, and then eventually, um, I, back in the early 60s, when the Beatles came out, I decided I wanted to have long hair, but I didn't really have long hair. I had short hair, it just combed down. And uh, even though I had a 93 average in high school, they kicked me out because I wouldn't comb my hair up and I wouldn't tuck my shirt in. You know, those are two major crimes. Well, you went to a very strict school. uh, Well, you know, in those days, you know, uh, girls couldn't wear black uh, patent, what was it, black patent leather shoes uh, and a skirt. What I remember um, is we had to wear a skirt, and it had to be a certain length. Right. You, you'd have to kneel down on the floor to show, usually a male administrator, that your skirt touched the floor when right. you were on your knees, if you can believe that. Well, yeah, no. And, and, and Troy, I, I mean, yeah, the girls couldn't wear uh, these black, shiny shoes in a dress because the boys would apparently be able to look up. Oh well, that's a new one. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so when you were kicked, absurd, you when know. you were kicked out of high school and then out of your house, how how did you survive? How did you get along? Well, well, in those days, I must say it was probably much safer to be on the streets than it is today. 
but um, I just I had a lot of you know a lot of a lot of people a lot of my teachers and in Troy High wrote letters to the editor. I mean there was a big you know controversy about kicking me out because number one I was a smart kid I wasn't you know I wasn't stupid I had a really good grade and why were they kicking me out because my hair was combed down I mean it didn't make much sense really and so there was a little bit of controversy and people wrote letters to the editor and I and uh, I guess I became a symbol you know of uh, whatever and and so uh, my friend Howie and I used to hang around a lot and um, basically, the Teenagers of Troy supported me. There used to be a restaurant on, on River Street called the Mayflower. We call it the Boat. And uh, that's where all the kids would hang out after high school. And uh, so we'd go there and our, you know, have a cherry Coke and eat French fries and gravy. That's what everybody had in those days. And the, and the teenager, you know, we'd stand there and wait for the school buses to come out. And then how we would go up and say, you know, it's time for Ringo's drum payment or whatever, because I was a, a drummer in a rock band uh, in 65. And the kids of Troy actually paid for my, my drums once a month. would go around collecting money. Oh, my gosh. So the, yeah, so the kids, I, I was kind of, you know, taken care of by, by my colleagues, I guess you would say. <laughs> so you are using some of your 60s experiences in making a film. It's already out, I saw. Could you tell us a little about that? Yeah, during those days... Um, uh, well, I lived up in Peru for five years on a dairy farm, and I went to school up in Peru. And there was a, a girl named Karen who, when I was 15, she uh, invited me to a birthday party. You know, and that, in those days, I guess I thought, you know, she was my girlfriend. Anyways, she, she moved to Florida, and I moved back to Troy. And, and one summer day, I was just bored, and a friend of mine came over and said, what are we going to do? And I said, well... I had a dream about Karen the night before. I said, well, I'm, I'm going to go to Florida and go see Karen, which was kind of stupid because I had no idea where Florida was, <laughs> and I had no money. Did you have any idea where Karen was other than no, Florida? No, okay. I just knew, I knew she was uh, in a place called Goulds, which was south of Miami, and that's all I knew. But, you know, when you're 16, you know, you're not quite thinking straight anyway. So we started hitchhiking, and uh, we got as far as Daytona Beach, Florida, yeah, we got arrested for vagrancy, and we almost got killed in North Carolina by rednecks. We we saw discrimination, segregation. I mean, it was just one disaster after another, and we finally made it back. So, so this is then becoming almost an autobiographical film. I hadn't understood oh, that oh, that yeah. you made. Yeah, it so was. it's I like mean, the, it's based on a true, yeah, it's based male, on his experience. The male, uh, what is the word? Iconic uh, journey and return. You know, yeah, it's <laughs> like, kind of like Odysseus a coming, and it's coming a coming back. Of age. Yeah, yeah, it's like a coming of age. But this is this was the beginning of the sixties. A lot of people, you know, there's been movies made about the sixties, you know, the Woodstock era and stuff like that. But nobody really knows. Or no, well, I should say nobody knows, but there hasn't been any um, movies about how it started. You know, uh, remember the baby boomers, uh, which I belong to. We kind of grew up in a bubble. You know, after World War II, the country was doing great economically. Um, you know, everybody had a house and a white picket fence, unless you were really poor, and and uh, we were kind of pretty secure. And then all of a sudden, we got involved in Vietnam. And uh, up until 1966, the country supported that war. When all the polls came out, you know, it, it was favorable. But 1966, people started to know, everybody started to know somebody who got killed in Vietnam. And the tide turned. And 1966 was the first year that the 
the country kind of turned against the war. So that was the beginning. I mean, the Beatles came out in 63, and, you know, that their music was kind of counterculture. But it really was the... Um, us thinking, why are we being drafted to go kill somebody we don't know, and for no really good reason? And that was the beginning of the 60s. That was sort of where you could see this uh, great society starting to fracture. And, you know, 64 is when the civil rights um, uh, began, Martin Luther King. So, so all of this stuff is kind of bubbling up to the surface. And in 66, 67, 68 is kind of when it hit the fan. And that, that was the beginning of the real uh, you know, sixty. They say sixty-eight was really the year where it really, you know, we can really call it the the tumultuous sixties. But it had so a start. So your your movie and your journey, your actual real life journey, was in the prelude to it, this. Yes, it was sixty-six. Was it was just starting, and so we were so we were exposed to segregation. I mean, we were in South Carolina. We used to get a lot of rides from black truck drivers. Who would feed us? And there was one in particular that we called Sammy because he looked like Sammy Davis Jr. And every like half hour, he'd stop and feed us. And we go, you know, we don't have to eat every half hour. He says, well, don't worry about it. You know, I've got an expense account. And he said, I'd only spend it on beer. So he was like great. And he very much featured, featured in my movie. Um, but I remember uh, we were sleeping and he pulled into this uh, a diner in uh, South Carolina. And he said, you know, you, you boys go in first and I'll follow you. And I go, no, 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 no. We all go together. We all go in together. And he said, you know, look, look up, boy. And I looked out the window and, there, and the, uh, there's this giant sign on the, on the entrance that said white entrance only. And then on the other side of the building was colored entrance. And there was a bathroom to the right and it said white. And then there was another one. And I won't repeat what the other one said for, 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 um, so this was a new experience for you. Oh, that, well, I, yeah. I grew up in Troy. You know, right. I grew up, like I said, in a bubble, you know. Yeah. And, you know, my biggest fear was not getting caught by the truant officer. <laughs> so, so, so was it that. It was getting busted for vagrancy. I remember saying to the, to the judge, it's against the law to be broke in America. And this was in this Daytona? Daytona Beach. Yeah. yeah. And that's how they got their money. In fact, it was illegal. And later on, as, as I did research for the movie, I found out that what they were doing is illegal anyways. But that's how they get the money, because all the kids went to Daytona Beach in the summertime, and that was their, how they got a lot of money, which is arrest you for vagrancy. When you don't have any money, though, how, how did you pay? I, well, yeah, yeah, well, we got 30 days in jail. But one, of the, one of the police officers, the former New York City cop, and he liked us, and they broke, basically broke us out of jail. How long were you in jail? Just a couple of days. So uh, what he, was that like? I wouldn't want to do it again. Uh, you know, for somebody who likes their freedom, not having it is, you know, I, I, I don't understand how anybody could, could, could stand being in there for any length of time. So, uh, but we, I mean, we weren't criminals. You know, we didn't do anything wrong. We were hitchhiking, just trying to go see a girlfriend. So, <clears throat> so we got out of that, and, um, and we almost got killed by rednecks in South Carolina. They took all the money we had, which was only $7. And, and uh, how, how did you run across them? What was that well, experience? Well, we were hitchhiking. So, you so know, they picked they you up picked in a car? And they took us into uh, these pine woods, told us to get out of the car. And uh, we got out, and I knew we were in trouble. And, you know, they asked us where we were from. We said New York, which we probably shouldn't have done. Uh, well, they could probably they, hear it in your voice. Because the Yankees, yeah. yeah. And... Uh, and they, so they said, you know, give us your money. And we, we got, like I said, we only had $7. And 
And then it looked like they were they were looking at each other and figuring out how they're going to dispose of us. And <laughs> and I always tell people that Bruce Lee saved my life. Well, do you remember the Green Hornet TV show? Back I, in the 60s. No. I certainly heard of well, it. Well, you know Bruce Lee. Yeah. yeah. And he was a kung fu expert. And I used to watch that show every Saturday, I think it was, religiously. And I would just mimic. I didn't know kung fu. I didn't know martial arts. But I would mimic you know, watching him on the show. And so when these uh, four guys decided they were going to, they started approaching us, I went into this Bruce Lee routine. Scared the hell out of them. They didn't know what was going on. <laughs> I mean, I was screaming, yelling, jumping up and down, doing all kinds of moves. And they jumped back in their car and took off. So, so that's that's how we got out of that. And then on the way back, uh, you know, the only reason why we got out of jail in Daytona Beach is the the cops said, you know, if I let you out, where you're going? And you know, initially I said, well, we're we're trying to go to Miami, you know, see a see a girlfriend. He says, no, 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 no. If I let you out, where are you going to go? And it was obvious we had to go go home. back home. Yeah. So we did. So we started hitchhiking north. And then the rest of it. Is about our stay in Baltimore, and we finally made it to Baltimore, and by then we were just exhausted. And I remember my father once telling me about Travelers Aid, which is his agency that would help you know stranded motorists. Now they t- I think they take care of homeless people now, but in those days, if you got stranded, they would give you a bus ticket home, you know, or or get a place for you to stay overnight. And so we, and it was at the train station. So we we went there and we just begged, you know, for a ticket home, but the tra- but the bus had already left. So the woman gave us a voucher to stay at the Y that night and another voucher to get something to eat because we hadn't eaten in probably a day and a half. And so we got our room at the Y, and you know it's three o'clock in the afternoon. So we said, well, let's go see Baltimore. And we walked out, and of course there's this beautiful brunette standing in the corner, kind of a hippie. Long hair, and, you know, barefoot, and you know, I thought I'd get lucky, so we went up and started talking to her. We ended up staying with her for two weeks. Her name was Jan, and um, uh, she was from Menans, of all places, uh, which is ironic. And, but uh, but well, she was a lesbian, and I had no idea what what gay was. And uh, and at that time, you know, if you were gay, and you, you'd get killed or beaten up if you, if you had even spoke about it. And there was this park in Baltimore where gays around the country was kind of like a sanctuary, you know, in those days. And there was a cop down there that used to kind of protect them. And so, and that's where John Waters, the famous filmmaker, used to hang out there. Um, um, Ca- uh, Candy Darling, uh, Andy Warhol's. Um, he was an actress, a transvestite, I think, transgender. Uh, so it was this, you know, a park where all, a lot of gays from around the country migrated to because it was like a, like I said, a sanctuary. And so I found out that she was a lesbian, and and she was, and the four guys that was living with her were gay. And so we were introduced to the gay community back then. And I mean, Lenny and I weren't gay, but uh, but again, I had this real interest in Jan, and we came, we became very close. Um, and I ended up saving the life of one of the kids because when the when the police officer wasn't there on his day off, the straights would come and try to beat them up. And one day they were trying to drown one of the kids in the in the fountain there. So we went down and, and kind of saved them. And uh, so about a week or so after that, 
you know, I, I decided, well, we I got to get back home because school's starting. You know, it'll be September, and so we left. And so that's kind of where the movie ends. Is you know, us getting on the bus to come back home. But that that it was about a month we were gone. That month really shaped who I was going to become, really, because I saw so much of justice in, in in a little more than a month. And while I'm experiencing that, so is the country. You know, Vietnam is heating up. Uh, it's starting to get race riots. I mean, there was all kinds of stuff going on. And that's when the 60s really, really started. So, so my movie's about the beginning of that. So you can start seeing all the see fractures in society. It's just kind of starting. And our generation was the first to start asking questions. You know, up until that point, if the teacher said something, you did it. If your mother or father said do it, you did it. If the, you know, if anybody told you what to do, you did it. Nobody questioned authority, but we we did. You know, the sixty generation was the generation that started really saying, "I don't think that's true," you know, and we're going to change it. So, what do you hope the movie? Who 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 should see it? What do you hope it'll well, do? Well, I think well, baby boomers. There's a lot of Easter eggs in the movie. I mean, if you grew up in the '60s, there's lots of little Easter eggs in there that you go, uh, wink, wink. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I I like to see what the you know. I showed it to my class, my cultural anthropology class, and they loved it because you know there is a fascination about the '60s, uh, especially with the younger kids. So. Uh, you know, the millennials, Generation Z, that's who I'm interested in seeing how they react to it. The baby boomers, I made it really for the baby boomers, you know, for my generation, because they relate to it. I don't know if anybody else relate to it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, only time will tell. Well, one of the things you just mentioned in passing that I'd like to go back to when you were talking about Lou Ismay and how you had mm-hmm. free run with half of his office because of your commitment to the pine bush. Just tell us a little, because that, too, is kind of out of the 60s, I would think. This well, that was of, the beginning of the, uh, yeah, the environmental movement. Yeah. Yeah, although it started in late 50s with Rachel Carson, uh, Silas. Uh, Silent Spring. Little, uh, yeah, and... Uh, and the San County, San County Almanac was Silas Little. No, what was his name? Oh, God, I forgot his name now. Anyways, so there were two major books in the late 50s uh, uh, that kind of called attention to it. Silas Spring was really a really good one about pesticides. But 1969, a fellow named John McConnell, who was the son of a Baptist minister, started the first Earth Day. This was in San Francisco. And uh, he made a sign, and he had a proclamation that was signed by a lot of world leaders. And, uh, and then in 1970, to kind of follow up on that, Gaylord Nelson, who was a senator, uh, created what was called the Environmental Teach-In in 1970. And all the colleges had this teach-in. But the press called it Earth Day. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't Earth Day. McConnell started Earth Day. But, you know, media got it a little screwed up, and, it, and since then it's, all, it's always been called Earth Day. John McConnell was a friend of mine, so uh, in his later years, we, we became very good friends. Uh, so Earth Day began, and so, yeah, you know, everybody was starting looking around, looking around their neighborhood and going, well, you know, what can I do? You know, well, how's my environment affected? The pine bush is this very unique piece of land. There's only, it's, it's known as the Pine Barrens. So it's a very unique ecosystem. And there's only about seven in the world. And uh, Albany maybe, well, it used to be the third largest. It's, it's, it's been dwindled down a bit. But people have been trying to save the pine bush. They've been interested in writing about the pine bush for 400 years since Europeans have been here. 
but in the 1930s, 1940s, a fellow named uh, Bill Effner, who was a Schenectady City historian, began doing a lot of research out there with the old colonial roads and tavern sites. And then in 1969, 1970, I met a fellow named John Wolcott, who was a historian in Albany. And uh, I was getting, you know, I was only a few years, a couple of years away from graduating, and I, I thought I was going to be a biochemist. Uh, but then when Viet, you know, when the war started, I didn't, you know, chemists at the time were making napalm. And so I said, well, I'm not going to do that. And then I got interested in people because of what was going on socially around the country. And I became an anthropologist. Yeah, I got it, majored in anthropology, archaeology. So this fellow, um, in 1970, we had this uh, tour to go clean up the pine bush because it was being used as a dump. And uh, so we all got together and got some sooty buses. We had about 20 kids, went out and started cleaning it. And I was talking to John, and we got talking, and he found out I had an interest in history and archaeology. And he said, well, I know where there's some great archaeological sites at the pine bush. And so he took me to the King's Highway, to the Truex Tavern sites, and I said, that's what I'm going to do. So in 1973, um, I wrote to the mayor at the time, Mayor Corning, and I said, look, you know, the bicentennial is coming up in 1976. Uh, this would be a great project to excavate these tavern sites, call attention to, the, to the, our local history. And, I, you know, if you know anything about the Corning uh, era, you know, it was, the, you know, the O'Connell Corning machine, and everybody was afraid of, of Corning. Uh, but I was a kid from Troy. Well, I wasn't afraid of anybody. People said, well, you can't go see Corning. You know, you got long hair and blah, blah, blah. But you could wear chain mail, so you were protected. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't know what all the... And, of course, I knew nothing about machine politics, so it, it didn't scare me. So I just called him up thinking, you know, I'll get the secretary. And I, and, and I did. This fellow answered, and I said who I was. He said, well, hold on for a minute. And like a minute later, there's Corning on the phone, and I started explaining to him what I wanted to do. And he said, well, come on down. And I said, well, when? And I'm thinking, yeah, I'll get an appointment in a week or two. And he says, well, come down tomorrow. I said, well, tomorrow's Saturday. He said, well, I'll be there. <laughs> I said, okay. So I went down, and, uh, you know, here's a stately mayor who had been mayor for 41 years, the longest-term mayor in the country. And I explained what I wanted to do, and he says, Sounds like a good idea. And he, and he had this metal desk from 1941. And he pulled open the drawer and he took out a big checkbook. And he says, how do you spell your name? And I spelled my name. He wrote it down. He handed me a check for 500 bucks. He says, is this enough to start? I said, uh, yeah. I mean, $500 was a lot of money in 1973. And that's how I started my work in the Bainbush. He wrote me a personal check. And you eventually wrote a book about it. Yeah. Uh, and then um, once I started doing research and you know, about the history and then the natural history and talked to some other scientists that I had been working with, I realized this area is really special. And people had been trying to save it, like I said, for years. And, uh, and taking Lou Ismay's class was called Environmental Form. And it was a, uh, it was a project-oriented class. I mean, you didn't take tests. You had to do a project. And so I remember we're all sitting around, and everybody's, you know, one student says, well, I heard uh, Tobin Meatpacking, somebody's polluting Patroon Creek, that'll be my project. Another one said, well, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so everybody had these projects, and they went to me, and I, and I said, well, I need nine credits to graduate. I'll go save the pine bush. And, of course, they all <laughs> laughed, and Lou laughed. I had no idea what I was getting into. Uh, and 
uh, and that's what I did. <laughs> so, and you later became the Albany City archaeologist. Yeah, after and after I was graduating, and I had sent, we did the excavation of the tavern site in that summer. I sent Corning a report, like a 200-page report, and I said, look, you know, the bicentennial is coming up. There's more taverns out here. You know, this could be a really good, a good job. I'm graduating in December. Uh, is there any way I could, you know, work for the city? And he said, well, write up a description. So I became the first city archaeologist in the country, and I wrote up my own job description. And I know you were quite passionate last time we talked about how you feel Albany ignores a lot of its history. So could you just kind of tell us what's there and why we should care about it? Well, Albany is the oldest continually settled city in America. Uh, the capital district, if you talk about American history, this is where it began. It began when the Dutch, you know, um, uh, when Henry Hudson basically came up the Hudson. And, and I guess because trade. the English finally he predominated was, that we tend to, in school, learn about the you don't British about the rather Dutch. than That's the right. Dutch. Yeah. Well, to the victor go the spoils. Mm-hmm. So the Dutch started this all, and they were here for 60 years until the English took it over. And then they confiscated all the colonial documents and hit them in the towers of London. So, yeah, you know, when, when you were being taught American history, it, it began with the pilgrims, and with the English, they never mentioned the Dutch. The other thing I learned about the Dutch in high school was that Peter Stuyvesant had a wooden leg, and, and Minuet <laughs> bought Manhattan for twenty-four bucks worth of you know beads. And that's the only thing they taught. Yeah. So, uh, but no, this is where it all began, you know. And in sixteen fourteen, a little Dutch ship that they had built at the tip of Manhattan came up and founded Fort Nassau. Oh, is this the Onrus, the one that the you Onrus. built? The, yeah. Tell us a little about that. That project was huge. Well, in I'm, uh, in, in two thousand, they had discovered uh, the only seventeenth, I think it's uh, the only eighteenth century rum distillery in North America, downtown Albany, near the Quackenbush Square. And uh, rather than save it, they hired our because they were going to put some kind of a parking garage on top of it. And so they hired archaeologists and they excavated the whole thing. And uh, and there was a lot of controversy about it because it was the only. I mean, this would have been a tourist attraction for years, but they were going to build this parking lot no matter what the parking garage. So uh, for a weekend, they opened it up to the public. Come on down and see it. And uh, my friend John Wilcott and I went down and. We, and uh, while we're looking, we're, there was another uh, couple families next to us, and we got talking. And one had an accent, a Dutch accent. And I started talking to her. Her name was Greta, and actually she was Belgian, so you don't, you can't say Dutch. Uh, that's an insult to, to the Belgians. And uh, we Greta got talk- Weigel, is that? Yeah. yeah. And so we got talking about, you know, how bad, you know, how this is terrible, destroying blood. And she says, well, I want to do this exhibit on, on Dutch history. And I said, well, I'll be glad to help you. So we got together and we started working on this, uh, this what was going to be a large exhibit on, on New Netherlands, which is, you know, the early Dutch uh, name for this area. And unfortunately, um, the money didn't come through to finish it. So we got talking, and part of this was uh, we, there was a fellow named Gerald DeWert who was a ship archaeologist in, uh, in the Netherlands. And he, had, over, he and his team over the last 15 years had pulled up I don't know, 150 shipwrecks from the reclaimed Zyder Zee, which is this inland sea. And he was able to use reverse engineering and figure out how the Dutch built ships in the 17th century. Because they were, you know, they they built uh, ships quicker and cheaper than any European nation during the 17th century, and that's why they ruled the world all, the, all those years. But you know, once that the golden age left and the knowledge of shipbuilding, 
um, that was it. And so he, by pulling these ships, figured out how they did it. And he gave a presentation at a seminar in Albany in 2001, I think it was. And he was talking about the onrust. And so we thought, well, while we're doing this exhibit, why don't we just, like, build a little piece of it and, you know, we'll put it in the exhibit, talk about the early uh, shipbuilding techniques. So once the exhibit looks like it, looked like it wasn't going to happen, we said, well, why don't we just build the ship? We'll make that the museum. We'll make and that you did. Exhibit. Yeah, and everybody said we couldn't do it. And they said you shouldn't do it. And, you know, who are you to be trying to do this? Uh, there was a lot of opposition to it among, you know, uh, similar-minded people. But we did it anyway. So we ended up with 350 volunteers, many of them G- retired GE engineers and scientists. And we built that ship in six years. And in 2009, during the celebration of the quadricentennial, we floated that ship down to New York. And then we, we in the Half Moon, brought 300 other ships back up at a big parade. So it was quite the it was quite the project, and uh, and Greta still runs it. it, got, it in the summertime, it's up in uh, Hartford, which actually Adrian Block and the ship discovered, you know, settled, or not settled, but founded, uh, and uh, it's a floating museum and classroom. That's wonderful. So it's a great project. Yeah. You know. Well, unfortunately, our half an hour has sped by. Do you have any wow. closing thoughts or? Anything you want to share from deep inside to uh, close us out? Well, just don't ignore history. You yeah. know, don't ignore your history. Um, and uh, like the old saying is, um, you know, those who don't understand history are, or the problems of history are, are bound to repeat them. So there's a there's a there's an effort to get rid of history and humanities and schools and stuff. And we need to make sure that doesn't happen. History is important. Very good. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome.